0: Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett after the Patriots knock off the Cardinals tonight 27 to 13 We'll recap this game in just a little bit with three-time Super Bowl champ James White. We'll get into the Celtics as well so Let's start with this game tonight because it was an ugly one. There's no way around it. The Patriots get a win, which is great. They stay in playoff contention, but it wasn't a very entertaining football game whatsoever. In fact, the most entertaining thing about the game was the boss, Bill Simmons, on with Peyton Manning and Eli Manning saying that he thinks that Brady could come back to the Patriots. Now, I don't agree with them on that. I don't think Brady's going to come back here. I just don't think he's got enough weaponry. I don't think this team is intriguing enough for Tom to come back. If they had good weapons, I think maybe Tom would consider it, but... In all seriousness, that was the most entertaining thing of the game tonight because the game on the field was not very entertaining whatsoever. And what we continue to see is issues for this Patriots offense. And let's not dismiss the fact that three plays into the game, the best player on the opposing team, Kyler Murray, goes out of the game. So it completely changes everything. That was the most exciting player in the game to begin with. And he goes out, so the challenge becomes a little bit easier for this Patriots team. But the big thing to me that sticks out tonight and – The overwhelming feeling I get after watching this game is that the Patriots offense is in the same place that it was prior to this game, which is this offense sucks. There's no way around it. You just look at some of the issues in this game in terms of the drive killers. First series of the game, third and nine, Trent Brown jumps, and then Mack gets it knocked down on third down. I should say second down, Trent Brown jumps, and then Mack gets the ball knocked down at the line of scrimmage. Brown on the season. Pass blocking grade, according to Pro Football Focus, is 73.5, which is not great, especially for your tackle. 34th out of tackles at the NFL. He's supposed to be the guy that's supposed to be your best tackle. He's nowhere near the tackle that you're paying him to be. Second drive of the game. Second and six. Henry is one-on-one with Cameron Thomas, a rookie pass rusher who weighs 269 pounds. He's seventh among pass rushers, according to Pro Football Focus, in the rookie class. Henry's 249. He's giving up 20 pounds. It's a long play action. And you're asking Hunter Henry, who is not a great blocking tight end. He's middle of the road. He ranks 39th out of 80 tight ends in terms of the block grade. So you're asking him to hold up against a guy that is a really good pass rusher as a rookie why would you do that? It's just dumb football by Matt Patricia to ask his tight end to do that. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And what happens there? Oh, shocker, interception because he hits Max arm and there's an interception the other way. I mean, it's just these mistakes that we continue to see. Like, why would you think that would work? It's not going to work. And we just continue to get... More and more evidence that Matt Patricia is never going to be good at this job this season. Maybe a couple years down the line, whatever, if Bill gives him the rope to continue as the play caller, he'll eventually be good. But right now, we have the evidence that tells you he's not good. All right, fourth drive of the game, second and nine. Mack to Aguilar. Aguilar drops it. Okay, and Aguilar dropped two balls tonight. Then you get a delay a game. Then you get an illegal shift. That penalty's declined. So this is after, by the way, a great pickup to extend the drive where Aguilar catches a ball on third down, but two plays later, he drops a ball. So there's inconsistency from Nelson Aguilar tonight. And I get it that Myers is out of this game and that Devontae Parker is out of this game as well. But this is what we heard about Aguilar before he came to the Patriots. He drops the football two drops tonight. All right, fifth series of the game, second and seven. Mac Harris loses four yards. Then he's sacked by Zach Allen, loses ten yards. Miscommunication between Trent Brown and Cole Strange. Now, look, maybe you never pick up that first down to begin with, but again, you have miscommunication with your offensive line, which we've seen throughout the season. All right, the series right before the half. Somebody's got to help me with this one. First of all, a handoff on third down that you can't execute with ten seconds left. Why the fuck are you handing it off there anyway? I don't know what Matt Patricia is thinking. It makes no sense. Why are you handing off the ball there? It doesn't make any sense. So luckily, Nick Folk nails a 51-yard field goal, and part of that is the conditions are nice there, right? He's kicking in Arizona. He's not kicking outside in New England, so that certainly helps you there. But uh, first of all, you just can't drop it. I mean, that's not completely on Patricia. The play call is dumb. But I don't know how you can't execute a handoff at the end of the half. It's sort of a microcosm of the Patriots' season. These dumb mistakes, these costly mistakes, time after time again. All right, first drive after the half. Strong runs on a play where he just ran the ball for 44 yards. Then they give it to Strong again, and he gets no gain, right? You get into the red zone, and we continue to come back to these red zone issues. No gain, then Mac incomplete on a throwaway, and then Mac to Thornton for seven yards, and you settle for a field goal. So, first of all, you don't go for it there. The Patriots on the season have gone for it on fourth down nine times. Only the Falcons and the Saints have gone for it less often on fourth down. It's fourth and three. and it just tells you how little confidence Bill Belichick has in this offense right now where he won't even go for it on fourth and three deep in the opponent's territory when they have Colt McCoy as the quarterback. I hate that. I feel like you're coaching soft when it comes to that. So anyway, then you go further, 10th series of the game, strong with a four-yard run on third and seven. This is when the Patriots have a two-touchdown lead, okay? And I get it. It's late in the game. You have complete control. But why, on third and seven, when you have a situation where your offense is struggling, why don't you try to build up some momentum for the offense, for the quarterback? You could tell when Mac was coming off the field, he was frustrated that they're running the ball there. The Patriots in a really bad spot offensively. Try to get something going when it comes to that, and instead... You say, all right, let's just punt the ball. You need work, okay? You need to get better offensively, and you're running the ball on third and seven. Let the quarterback try to get better. I don't understand it whatsoever. It just pisses me off. Unbelievable to me. And then you get another three and out. So back-to-back three and outs after the touchdown drive. Continues to be an issue for the Patriots. And you just look at it. A lot of this is because they're bad on first down. So if you look at the dropback success rate against the Cardinals on first down this year, and that basically means if you're not familiar with success rate, I think I've said it before, but basically you have to get 40% of the yardage to get a first down on first down, 60% of the yardage on second down, and then on third down to pick up the first down. So the success rate against the Cardinals in terms of dropbacks on first down is 57.6%. Okay, last in the NFL. And the Patriots, if you think about two of the first down play calls in this game, A handoff to Strong after he runs for 44 yards, you're in the red zone. Be more creative than an obvious run. And then a handoff to Harris after taking over at the 40-yard line. You take over at your 40-yard line, you have an opportunity to go in there and score points. You're handing it off to the running back on first down. Realize, like, we heard for so many years the Patriots are chameleons. We heard it this year. They're a game plan oriented team, right? It depends on what the opponent isn't good at. Well, this opponent is legitimately the worst against the pass on first down in the entire NFL. You have opportunities to throw the football on first down. You're not doing it. Doesn't make sense to me whatsoever. Okay. Another thing in this game. Third down continues to be an issue for the Patriots. Coming into tonight, they're 26th in the NFL, 36.2% in the terms of their conversion rate. Now, a lot of that has to do with the work on first and second down, as we've acknowledged. The Cardinals, though, they're third down defense, 45%. That's 28th in the NFL. So this is a game where the Patriots third down offense should get going. What do they do tonight? Three for 11. That's 27.3%. The Denver Broncos are last in the NFL at 28.1%. So the Patriots tonight, against a team that is terrible on third down, were worse than the worst offense in the NFL. And by the way, the team's under 30% on the season Carolina, Houston, and Denver. That's it. In the entire league. And the Patriots managed to be worse than all those teams tonight. So you were hoping for some progress from the offense, and it just wasn't there whatsoever. The offensive line, an issue again, and I'll talk to James White about this, but you think about it, the under center play action stuff just didn't work. Early in the game, you had a throwaway, then you had the pick where Hunter Henry's being asked, and some of that is just dumb. He's being asked to block a defensive end for that long. Makes no sense whatsoever. But they don't trust the line to hold up. Bottom line, they don't. And I have to agree with Patricia in some sense. Like When you look at that offensive line, it's just not very good right now from a personnel perspective. How about the penalties in this game? Another issue. Eight for 80. So the Patriots came into tonight averaging six penalties per game. That's 21st in the NFL. Denver's last at 7.5. And the Patriots are at eight tonight. Penalty yards 80, as we acknowledge on the season. They're 49.2. That's 18th. Denver's last at 63.5. So this is an undisciplined Patriots team. We're just not used to seeing that. It continues to be a trend all season long. How about time of possession tonight? You felt like, okay, at least you can hold on to the ball a little bit. Well, the Patriots couldn't. The Patriots came into tonight 16th in time of possession, 29 minutes and 56 seconds on average. Tonight, they were at 25 minutes and 52 seconds. Seattle's last in the NFL at 27 minutes and 45 seconds. So time of possession, they were worse than anybody in the NFL, and they were also worse than anybody in the NFL, as we mentioned, on third down. So you were going up against a Cardinals defense that sucks, And you managed to be anemic for the majority of the game. You think about the Patriots' drives. I count 11 because you take out the kneel-out. Four three-and-outs, six punts, one interception. Okay, so you're looking at six punts and one turnover. You had two touchdowns, and you had two field goals. Not good enough. Against the Cardinals' defense, it isn't good. And then you look at it in terms of Mac, 235 passing yards. Great. You'd like it to be better than that. But nonetheless, his passer rating tonight, 75.3. And you think about this Cardinals defense, they were 30th in the NFL coming into tonight and in passer rating against at 101. And tonight, max at 75.3. The Patriots on the night get just 328 yards of offense, and Arizona's giving up 356.2 yards per game. The Patriots are at 328. So my whole thing here is the Patriots offense made no progress whatsoever against a team that is supposed to be a layup. This defense is not good, and the Patriots... Hunted on six of their 11 drives in this game. Not nearly good enough. And I don't know how anybody can feel good about this team coming out of this one. You think about the injuries, too. The Stevenson one is obviously the big concern. Okay. That's the big concern going forward. If you don't have Ramondre Stevenson, you're fucked. I mean, there's no way around it. He tried, I give him credit. The guy tried to come back out there and play. That's the big one to monitor going forward in, into this Raiders game. In terms of Mac, he did miss a wide-open Aguilar, the final drive of the first half. He did make up with it later on with a nice pass. They end up going down for the field goal, and, of course, we mentioned the dumbass run they decided to call. But you could tell he's just mad. He He's frustrated. He yells fuck after they had to burn a T.O. early in the second half. I don't blame him. He's upset the play call isn't coming in quick enough. Again, this is part of the operation with Matt Patricia, first-year play caller, not doing nearly a good enough job. I have no problem with Mac lashing out. And you think about it, too, how they don't trust this line at all. Mack had 11 screens with 1034 left in in the fourth quarter. That was a career high with 1034 left in the fourth quarter. So it tells you they don't trust the offensive line. The weapons have not been great. You feel like, hey, maybe they'll find something against this Arizona team. They just didn't. They had nothing going in this first half or in the second half whatsoever. I mean, they had a couple of drives in this game, but a lot of it had to do with the defense. It just... Again, it's just frustrating to watch this team play offense. And we're now looking at it 14 weeks into the season. Why should we believe it's going to change? It's not going to change. I mean, we just have to embrace the fact that this is who the Patriots are. They're a really bad offense. The one bright spot I would say is Henry in this game. Now, you got a nice couple of runs from Pierre Strong. But Henry, hey, he gets a 39-yard grab when on that drive where you take the 27-13 to lead. How often are we telling you, throw the ball to Henry. He's good. When he's targeted, passer rating, 11th among 41 qualified tight ends. He was at 112.8 last year, which was better than Travis Kelsey last year. Throw him the football more. I don't understand why the Patriots don't do that. And I also came to the reality just looking at the schedule. You compare the Chargers who are in the hunt here. They had the big win on Sunday night against the Dolphins, which actually hurt the Patriots. The one time you want the Dolphins to win, they can't win. But you look at the schedule down the stretch here. The Patriots got in this Cardinals game tonight. They have at the Cardinals, at the Raiders, Bengals, Miami, at Bills. Of course, they did beat the Cardinals tonight, but you just look at it. So the winning percentage for the teams the Patriots are playing, 563. How about the Chargers? Titans at Colts, Rams at Denver. Their winning percentage, 356, compared to the Patriots opponents that are at 563, And the Chargers, it felt like that team actually found something on Sunday Night Football with the Patriots. It doesn't feel that way whatsoever. Like, can you imagine the Patriots beating the Bengals, Miami, and the Bills? I I just can't envision that happening right now. And I look at the Chargers, Titans, Rams, Colts, and Denver. The only tough game they have in there is the Titans. All the Patriots games, even I would consider the Raiders a tough game for the Patriots the way they're playing right now and what the Raiders can do from an offensive standpoint. So this whole idea of the Patriots having a chance to make the postseason. I just don't see it right now, even though they're in contention right now and they're in that spot. I don't see them holding that up. All right. And then again with the defense. So the losses this season to a Lamar Rogers Fields, Cousins and Allen. And tonight I would have, even though Kyler Murray's having a down year, I would have given them credit for beating Kyler Murray. But it's Colt McCoy, who actually for most of the game looked better than Mac Jones. I mean, that's just the reality. He did. He looked better than Mac. But so now the wins. Colt McCoy, who's 36. He's a backup. Trubisky, who's been benched. Goff, of course, who's actually playing well. Brissett, now a backup. Wilson benched. Ellinger benched, and you beat Wilson a different time, of course, and he's benched. So I like what the defense did tonight. I thought Uche was outstanding in this game. The other thing is, we talked about taking away the number one option. Hopkins did that himself at times where he fumbled the ball to the Patriots. It's just an inexcusable fumble from DeAndre Hopkins. He finishes with seven for 79. But part of that, too, is if you're going to take away the number one option, he needs to have like a competent quarterback with him. Now, McCoy played well tonight for a backup quarterback, but it's a lot different when he has a guy like Kyler Murray there because Hill ate him up, Andrews ate him up, Jefferson and Diggs. So I can't really look at this game and say, I know Belichick has had a lot of success against DeAndre Hopkins in the past, but I can't look at this game and say, hey, the Patriots did it. They took away a number one option. Well, it's a lot different when Colt McCoy is the quarterback. If you juxtapose that with Kyler Murray. All right, then on the defense real quick here, I thought Judon was tremendous. Remember, he had just three quarterback hits and no sacks in the last two games, and he had 13 sacks in his previous 12 games, and tonight a couple of big plays. Second series, big sack to knock the Cardinals back on third and long, and then if you look at it with a first and 10, six minutes and 40 seconds left in the game, the Patriots up two touchdowns. He gets a sack. He was a free rusher, but you give him credit for that. And then he got late pressure on a fourth down where Uche got a sack. So Judon was really good. The good Judon showed back up today. And then Uche was tremendous. Uche, he had a sack on McCoy. Or I should say three sacks on McCoy. He had the pressure to force the interception. Remember when the Patriots, that, at that point, it's 20-13. to 13, It's still a game. He gets the pressure to force the interception from Colt McCoy. So he has just been tremendous. You look at the win rate, too. It's now ninth in the NFL 21.2%. Pro Football Focus documents that. So, all in all, the defense played well tonight. Uche was tremendous. Matthew Judon was tremendous. But the big story in this game is very little progress was made, if any. I would say the Patriots, the past two weeks, have actually taken a step backwards when it comes to their offense. And the concerns are still there with the offense, and you can't really buy into this team right now because they're just so inept from an offensive perspective. All right, a lot more to get into. We'll chat with three-time Super Bowl champ James White in just a little bit. We'll get his take on this thing, and then we'll get to some Celtics as well.
1: This episode is brought to you by State Farm.
0: Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, three-time Super Bowl champ, as he does after each and every game, it is James White. James, how are you, my friend?
2: Doing well. Can't complain. about yourself?
0: I'm doing well. I mean, I'm starting to... I'm a little frustrated with how things transpired tonight, James. But I got to ask you this off the top. Have you ever been in a game or watched a game where you've seen that many injuries?
2: No, I haven't. At least not in recent history, for sure. It's definitely unfortunate, especially you know, some key guys going down for both teams. It definitely impacts the game a lot. And it's tough to see guys go down for sure. I know it's a long season and yeah at that back stretch, you know, of the year and it's hard to stay healthy. Everybody's pretty much playing with some sort of, you know, minor injury or banged up or sore. So it's definitely tough. And it's probably the most important time of the year for for all teams. And I think sometimes, you know, especially come playoff time, sometimes the healthiest teams are the, the teams that win.
0: Yeah, and Ramondre Stevenson, so he goes out initially with the ankle injury, but then he comes back into the game, tries to gut it out, and of course he couldn't continue. And that's going to tell you it's pretty bad, right, if he tried to come back and play and it just wasn't working for him.
2: Yeah, definitely. It must be kind of like a high ankle sprain to me. I've, I've had that happen to me before where I've finished the game out, but I was pretty much, you know, ineffective. And that's what it kind of seemed like to me. Even when he came back in the game, you can tell he was kind of favoring a little bit and things that they So it's best to just kind of get them out, let them figure out that whole situation. Hopefully he can get, get back on the field, you know, sometime soon. But I thought it was a great opportunity for those young backs, those guys that haven't got an opportunity to really play impactful, you know, time this year for Kevin and Pierre especially. I thought they were huge. And I said, I think this offense goes as those running backs go. And even with those young guys, I think it's going to go as they go. If They're going to be the two guys that are going to be featured from – here until Damian and Ramadre get back out there. I thought, like I said, I thought they capitalized on the opportunity. They both had some explosive plays. Obviously the offense isn't a, you know, a shot offense. So it's going to be run game screens, quick passes. And that's where they are. Just kind of play, you know, possession offense. And hopefully the defense can make enough stops, create some turnovers. I think that's just kind of their formula. All
0: right, speaking of Pierre Strong, he had that nice 44-yard run. But let me get to this. So he runs for 44 yards. They get down into the red zone, and then right after that, he's running the football again. Like, as a running back, James, don't you kind of, like, want to play off after that? Don't you want to see the quarterback <laughs> throw the ball after that?
2: No, keep giving it to me. <laughs> keep, keep handing it to me. Defense is tired, too. They're tired chasing me. I, you know, the more you... After you break those 44-yard runs, you definitely want to finish it off yourself for sure. You definitely don't want to see them throwing it after that. (laughs) All right,
0: so the offense tonight, if you take out, of course, the final drive where they kneeled, it's 11 drives, and they had three three three-and-outs in this game. They had six punts. Of course, they had the interception as well. So the offense, they had a couple of nice drives, but other than that, it was a struggle. Again, we saw Mac Jones right after halftime. They burned a timeout. He screams "fuck." We can hear that audibly on ESPN tonight. They didn't; they weren't able to blur that one out. But it did seem like now after that, Mac went over to Matt Patricia after their touchdown drive. But it does seem like right now, James, there's still a lot of frustration with what's going on offensively with these guys.
2: Yeah, I mean it's definitely frustrating for sure. I mean well, the 14, 13 games in, and they're still you know very inconsistent. It definitely eats at you a lot. And I said they have the talent in that room, you know from whatever, from play caller standpoint of players, they have what it takes them to, to win football games and be A, explosive offense, but they're just not that. Just penalties, inconsistencies, you know, playing behind the sticks, just not really finding their identity is just tough. And I said, offensive line struggled pretty much all year long. You know, guys being banged up or just, you know, being inconsistent with their blocking is hard for a quarterback. And like I said, it's – when things aren't going right on offense. I mean, the first person you're going to see it from is the quarterback, obviously, and getting drops now and things of that nature. It's it's hard. It's hard to get any rhythm as an offense when you can't move the ball on first, second, down, your third, and nine, and not a good third down offense right now. They're struggling in the red zone. So it's, it's definitely frustrating for sure. And like I said, the, especially when it comes to week 13, and like I said, the same things are continuing to happen. Of course, now you're going to see the frustration come out even more. The beginning of the season, is fine. like Oh, we're going to get it. Oh, we're going to get it. Some more weeks go by. Oh, we're going to figure it out. And you still haven't. So... You know, that's pretty much where all that stuff, that pent up frustration is coming from.
0: All right. So when you were with the team, there wasn't a lot of struggles offensively, maybe in like individual games, although 19, you guys didn't have the best offense. And of course, 2020 with Cam Newton and company, you didn't have the best offense. But for the most part, you had a really good offense. You played with that Brady guy who wasn't bad at at the whole quarterback thing. But I just looked at it at the end of the game tonight where they're up 27 to 13 and they have a third and seven. And I understand that you want to make sure that you get the win and all that. But I felt like at that point because that was yeah, that was right (laughs) after the touchdown drive and you end up running it. You see that Mac is frustrated. He goes over and Patricia's talking to him on the sideline. But I do feel like this was an opportunity for this offense to try to get on track a little bit late in this game. Let Mac Jones throw the ball a little bit. I just hated the fact, James, that they ran the ball in that third and seven.
2: Yeah, I thought that was kind of a weird call too. But like I said, it's just, it just seems like this—that's what their identity is. Just kind of protect the football, let your defense win it. But I mean, obviously, you have to be up by 14 points, which they haven't been, you know, much all year long. But I don't know—they just—they got let it let it rip sometimes. And the thing is, like when they throw the ball down the field, it looks <laughs> it looks really good. They create the explosive plays, hit the seam route to Hunter, you know, a couple times. Just take some shots down the field. It looks good when they do it. Just they don't do it much. Um, like I said, just got to find ways to to be more creative to you know get the ball down the field. Stop having those tight ends block block those defensive ends and on, on those play actions. You can you can do it. Just don't have them do it on long play actions where you're trying to get the ball down the field. It's not a fair matchup to have you know Hunter Henry or John New trying to block one on one a defensive end in those situations. So I think you got to do a better job of scheming it up, allowing those guys to. You know take shots out. Nelly ran some great routes. Obviously he had some some drops, but I thought he had, did a good job of creating separation today. You know, Mac missed them here and there. It's just it's just very inconsistent. I and mean, if they can ever find that consistency as an offense, I know it's kind of late in the year, and it's hard to kind of turn that corner at this point. But it's, got, it's a tough stretch to finish the year out. And you pretty much once they have to win every game. I mean, to for it to be in cutting you know, the ball in their court, they're going to have to win out, and it's going to be tough for sure.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that play—the interception where Hunter Henry's given up 20 pounds—and that's an under-center play action for Mac Jones. It just feels like if you're going to do that, if you're going to do under-center play action, you can't have your tight end blocking a defensive end that, as a rookie, is having a really good season. That to me is just perplexing. That seems like something that's obvious, James. You can't have him blocking that guy. Yeah,
2: yeah you definitely don't want to do that. If if you're going to do it, at least you know have the t- the tackle there to help him at least, or. Like I said, you can do it. Just have to don't have them blocking him for that long. It has yeah. to be like a, a underneath route or somewhere the ball is going to come out of Max hands or some some things of that nature. Uh, obviously, that type of play is built for you know. Hunter Hunter's a decent blocker. But he's not a guy that's going to hold up for you know four or five seconds on a you know drop back pass. And then Gronk was fairly good at that. It's it's rare today to find a tight end who can do that who can catch as well. So, I uh, I wouldn't do (laughs) that.
0: Yeah, and one of the things like we've been harping on a lot this season is the play action, but I don't want to say in defense of Matt Patricia, but in defense of the team right now, you look at all those issues and you mentioned them, the issues they're having up front with the offensive line, it does feel like that's going to be a difficult thing for them to do. If you look at their first two under center play action by – my estimation tonight, what I tracked was you had the interception and you had a throwaway before that. So it felt like after that point, Matt Patricia, and maybe he was right mm-hmm. in doing this, felt like he couldn't yeah. go back to that because they were not going to be able to hold up with Mac in that situation.
2: Yeah, most definitely. I think that's a a big part of their game plan is the offensive line struggle. So they're not going to sit back there and try and drop back and hold the ball for four five plus seconds when your offensive line is struggling to hold up. So I think... That's kind of their method going into the game. We're gonna a lot of screens, a lot of quick game. We'll take our shots once or twice a game. Hopefully, we hit them. If not, then that's to the wayside. But like I said it's a combination of everything. Like I said, I know a lot of people like to point it straight at Matty P, but it's not just him. It's the players as well with their inconsistent play. You have to buy into what's going on. And like I said it seems like when they do and they figure things, you know, when things are all right, things look good. When just every play, guys are just taking their turn. I know this is the thing that Josh McDaniels preached a lot. You know, when in our offensive meetings on offense, you can't have, you know, one guy have an ME or whatever mess up on every single play on defense. You can have a guy blow a coverage, you but you have the DN makes a great play, jumps the snap, creates a sack, and everybody, nobody even cares about the coverage that's there on the back on the offense. Offensive line whiffs the block. Now that's a possible turnover. Next play. You know, you mess up your read at quarterback, you know, third and long, you know, or miscommunication, you're punting. So it's like you can't really do that on offense, back-to-back-to-back-to-back to back to back to back plays. You're never going to get in any rhythm. You're never going to score any points. I think I think the biggest thing for me, they had to figure out the red zone. The red zone, as a coordinator, that's the toughest, you know, the toughest it gets, Short, short field position. You got to scheme things up versus the team that you're going up against. You're going to have to – be extremely creative to find ways to kind of trick the defense and get an easy touchdown, kind of like what the Chiefs do. They have all those rinky-dink plays, but they end up being the same play with a little shovel pass and all that stuff. It's hard, but they has got to find a way to be creative because it always seems like they're like third and ten from the from the eleven yard line. That's like near impossible to score and things of that nature. So they have to figure that out a lot too, for sure. That's. Always been a staple of our offense being good in the red zone.
0: Yeah, and they came into tonight last in the NFL in touchdown percentage in the red zone. When last year they were in the top 10, they were over 62%. So they were really good when it comes to that. So what are you seeing there? Is it just too vanilla? Do you think it's just too obvious compared to what, say, Josh McDaniels did a year ago?
2: Yeah, I think they just have to do a better job of scheming things up versus the team they're going up against or just find their go-to guys in the red zone and design and plays for those guys. I know depending on from week to week, depending on what defense we we're going up against. Like I said, maybe the receivers week this week based on, you know, playing the chiefs or this week is, you know, they're not going to cover the tight end too much in the red zone or they play strictly zone in the red zone. We got to, you know, get sneak a ball in low on the goal line just have a guy pin a guy up on the goal line, like Gronk and throw a low, get it in there easily. But it's, it's just different, different ways. You got to figure things out. It's tough. Like I said, I, like I I, <laughs> Never been a play caller in my life. I'm not going to sit up here and act like it's so easy. It's definitely hard, but they're going to have to figure that out to be able to score in those crucial situations.
0: Yeah, and I want to get your take on this, James, because I had Charlie Weiss on last week, and he was talking about, we were talking about Patricia and whatnot, and he brought up that, hey, well, there's also like a weapons issue on this team, right? Because no disrespect to Jacoby Myers, but he's kind of been penciled in as the number one receiver, obviously not available tonight. And then, of course, you lose Parker, who was going to be the number one receiver tonight with Jacoby Myers, out of the loop but from your experience for most of your career you had Gronk there which it felt like every opposition in terms of the defensive coordinator had to figure out hey are we doubling them and most teams would try to double Gronk so when you guys lost Gronk when he retired in 19 did you notice it was a lot easier for defenses to defend you guys than it was previously
1: well
2: oh. it's always easier to defend your offensive Gronk's not out there for sure but yeah. I think it just comes down to scheme at the end of the day I think they have you know, they don't have what what you call a superstar on offense, but they have. I feel like six, seven guys who are fully capable of making plays in the red area, red area, winning on winning on one-on-one routes or find the right spots. You know, from Ramondre to Damian, the KB, Jacoby, Devontae, Hunter, John. There's there's guys on that list that I just named out who can make plays and execute at the right plays called or just win one-on-one matchups and I think it's just you know, whatever you want to say, this scheming it up or those guys running the routes that are called and beating the guys in one-on-one situations. And it's always – it seems like there's always a lot of miscommunication when they get down the red air as well. It seems like the play call may get in late or guys aren't sure what they're doing. I know – I think I've said this before on your podcast before. Like, when I was there during training camp, a big point of emphasis was – you know being like a attacking offense like lining up fast getting to the line of scrimmage fast snapping the ball quick just putting the pressure on the defense but it seems like the operation's very slow seems like they they're waiting until the play clock almost runs out like almost every play at the line of scrimmage is not kind of what they envisioned I think they got to try and get back to that reinstill that and try to attack the defense and push the tempo a little bit more and be a little bit more of an aggressor. I think, obviously, they're playing really, really conservative, but then they got to get back into that aggressive mindset.
0: Yeah, I just wonder at this point, James, if this is kind of who they are, right? I mean, I look at their – they have an opportunity now. They've set themselves up where they have a chance mm. to get to the playoffs, but you look at this upcoming schedule and – the Raiders, I mean, they find really creative ways to lose games. They did it again last week. I mean, that's that's gotta be one of the worst losses of the season. Baker Mayfield coming in at the I don't I don't know what the heck Josh McDaniels is doing at the end of the well, I guess his yeah corner I, mean, I don't know what they're doing there. But nonetheless, <laughs> you think about after that, you got the Bengals, you got Miami, you got Buffalo, like you got a really difficult schedule and I just can't find anything right now based on the evidence and the body of work we have from the offense to say, hey, I can see them making a push. Like, I don't really feel like, and I know they were dealing with injuries tonight, but I don't really feel like they've made any progress tonight offensively. Do you?
2: No, I think the last two weeks, they've definitely taken a step back. Um, watching the Minnesota game, you you know, we thought things were kind of charting up for them and then going to the Buffalo game. I think, you now these past two weeks, they've been extremely conservative on offense. I think they have to you know, kind of get back to the more of aggressive mindset, and I think that's what they did versus Minnesota. Obviously, Minnesota's defense is a defense that gives up, you know, a bunch of yards. Uh, but they have to be just be more aggressive to me. I think that's that's what it is at the end of the day, and they're gonna have to figure things out extremely quickly. I think they can they can win all these games for sure. Every game's kind of a toss up with them because you don't really know which offense is showing up, you know, week in and week out. But it's hard. I think they'll be you know, underdogs in all the games besides from maybe the Raider game. So, I mean, I know Bill will have them prepared. I know they know how important these games are. They're going to be out there, out west for this week. So that would be good to, you know, have that team camaraderie and hopefully they can get a big win versus Vegas because that's going to be a tough matchup for sure. And, and those guys are banged up, but they play hard. They just find ways, like you said, to to lose games every single week. But they're going to they're gonna play tough. You got to stop that running game. You're going to get a heavy dose of Josh Jacobs. But... I said it's going to be a hard stretch for these guys, but I think offensively, I think it's going to be very important for them to figure it out because all these offenses can score points, and ten points isn't going to beat these teams.
0: Yeah, what could go wrong? Hanging out in Vegas, right? <laughs> <week, incredible. laughs>
2: I, I don't, I don't think they'll be in Vegas the entire week. I'm sure they'll stay yeah. out and yeah, they're, know, staying no, out yeah they're, they're staying somewhere. They're staying somewhere else. But yeah.
0: what did you? What were those trips like, James? You must have done it a couple times in your career, yeah. or so. By the end of it, were you just like, okay, I want to get home to my oh. family. Let's just go out and, like, kick their ass. <laughs> like, it. was that what it was like?
2: Yeah, for 100%. Like, it's it's fun. Probably get a win. You know, get a win tonight. You know, you can go do whatever after the game. Monday is cool. Then once, like, Tuesday, Wednesday, you're like, all right, let's just get this week over. <laughs> get a win and get back home because, they you know, staying in a hotel for an entire week just, you know be in a hotel room it's fun being around your teammates but you're you're around them all the time in general so (laughs) it's good for team chemistry but you definitely want to get home sooner than later
0: i'm sure gronk liked those trips right (laughs) i don't
2: know i don't never hung out with gronk on those trips but i said different guys do different things like i said some guys have families that live out that way or you know you get to go out to dinner with your teammates a little bit more than you probably would do back at home if you have you know kids and whatnot so It's it's definitely a lot of fun. Definitely a lot of team bonding for sure. All
0: right. The big positive tonight, of course, Judon had a big game. And we were kind of wondering, Judon, the past couple games have been a little quiet. But the thing to me, James, is Uche, man, he's got nine nine sacks. And he's got a sack in like his last six games in a row. And it just feels like, I mean, this guy, he can't be contained right now. I'm I'm really impressed with what we've seen from Uche. And it took a little while to get his career off the ground here. But, I mean, he's a real difference maker for them.
2: He definitely is. Like I said, in those pass rushing situations, that's where he's, you know, where he's at his best. He's a unique defender. He probably weighs not too much more than me playing, playing defensive end. But he's quick on his feet. He knows how to use his hands. And he can he can bull rush guys. You see, he bull rush Kevin him a few times uh, on his pass rushes. And he's a unique player. And I'm 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 happy for him. He's you know from where I'm from down in South Florida. Obviously, you know, he hasn't made too much of an impact his first few years, but he's really coming on strong, and he's he's a heck of a pass rusher. I think they have a great pass rush between, you know, those two, and then you got Wise as well. If they can find a way to, you know, be up seven, ten points in games, like in that fourth quarter, and let those guys, you know, let the chains off those guys and let them lose, let those dogs lose, they, they definitely can get after a quarterback for sure. <laughs>
0: All right, so two more big picture questions before we let you go. So the first one is, obviously Bill has a good relationship with Josh McDaniels, but what's it like, it's not like going back in the day when he would coach against Eric Mangini where he hated him because of everything that transpired with Spygate at that particular point in time, and he went to the Jets, but what's it like when Bill's getting ready to play against one of his former assistants? Is it that cliche it's every other week, or does it feel a little bit different?
2: It's it's like every other week, but you just know that that coach knows everything. I mean, they, he won't know everything offensive wise, because everything's new for the most part, but he knows what they do defensively. He knows what they're going to try and take away and things of that nature. And Bill knows that Josh knows that. So, I mean, try not to overthink that in a sense I and mean, just try and go based off the film and, and play ball. I'm sure both teams will have, you know, different wrinkles that they haven't done all year long. And they, they, you know, they practiced against each other during training camp as well. So they got a feel for each other back then. But, you know, both teams have injuries. There's all different things that have gone on all year long. You just have to base everything off the tape. But it's, it's not anything, you know, spectacular. You just know that these guys know what we do. We kind of know what they do. And obviously, the defensive coordinator for the um, for the Raiders as well was used to be the Patriots as well. So it's just you kind of have an idea or what you expect is going to happen. But then again, I mean, they'll do those things, but they'll have a special wrinkle for each other for sure.
0: Yeah, it's Graham, right? Didn't they bring over yeah, Graham. Graham from the Giants? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Pat okay. Graham. Yeah, so there'll be familiarity there. I wonder if Mac Jones is going to try to recruit Josh McDaniels before the game, see if he see if he wants to come back.
1: Although, I prob- <laughs> <laughs> hey, maybe out of he may be out of a job, man. You know, ne- you never know based on everything that's going on right now. Although.
0: The Raiders, like we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, it's not like the Raiders are one of these real wealthy NFL franchises like the Cronkies or whatever with the Rams. No. They're not in that particular situation. The other thing is this. So Bill Simmons, the boss, he was on um, the Manning cast tonight on that with Peyton and Eli. And he was throwing out his theory that he thinks that Tom could possibly come back to the Patriots. I know you don't believe in that whatsoever, but after what we saw against San Francisco where... Brady and the Buccaneers were just completely outclassed. You could tell yeah. that he was really frustrated with the situation. So, do you think it's more likely that he plays next year or that he actually steps away? Because I don't I, I look at Tom and I watch him play. I don't think there's anything wrong with Tom. I think it's more of an organization and a team thing. So, I think he's going to play. I just think it's going to be somewhere else.
2: Yeah, I feel like he's going to play. I don't think he's going to go out like this for sure, especially unless they, you know, turn things around, which they still can. You know, that division's terrible, so they can still figure it out. You know, sneak their way into playoffs. Not many teams are gonna wanna see them if they happen to figure things out. But I, I think he'll play next year. I don't think it'll be with the Buccaneers. Seems like things have gone a little left with that, with him and that organization. I just don't see him going back to the Patriots, but that's it. You know, ne- you never know what's gonna happen. I feel like he'll mosey his way on the Maybe to the 49ers or something like that. Go back home and finish it out over there.
0: (laughs) Although, I don't know, man. They got Mr. Irrelevant Brock Purdy right now lighting it up. I mean, that that guy's been impressive. But I do wonder, too, just like with that team, and I know they dealt with a ton of injuries to the offensive line before the season. Godwin was coming back from an injury, but Evans has not had the type of season that he's had. In previous years, I just always felt like at some point, Brady and the offense would figure this thing out, but it just feels like they're running out of time. What have you seen? Like, what's their biggest issue? Is it protecting Tom? Is it just is something off with them?
2: I think it's a little bit of everything. It's protecting Tom, not having a running game. But I mean, they their running game was never really crazy ever since he's been there. But just like it's kind of like the Patriots in a sense it's guy open. You miss him. Next play, sack. Next play, you know, whatever. You get a seven-yard game, punt it, get get back on the field, throw another pad, drop. This is like <laughs> it's just very inconsistent play. You know, they, they have their flashes where they look really good, and then they go four or five drives where they look like, like the worst offense in the league, and it's just really strange to see because they have plenty of pieces there, plenty of weapons. It's just like the chemistry is just off, and, and so you, you rarely ever see that from, you know, Tom and Godwin and Mike Evans. And you got Julio Jones as well. <laughs> the offensive line definitely is a big issue for sure. I think I think Donovan Smith, he, they need to find a new left tackle. He, every <laughs> every every week I see him holding. He's just so deliberate with it. He still throws up his hands like like, like what like what do you call him? But he's like full blown like grappling a guy. It's just it's hard to watch for sure. But I don't know. It just seems like a chemistry thing to me. Even though they've those guys have played with each other most of them for a few years now. I just, I don't know. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's my favorite thing when it's like an obvious penalty and the guy holds his hands. Up. The insane. other, the other one that I love is uh, DeAndre Hopkins, and I know he's one of the best receivers in the NFL. But after he has that fumble where he's holding the ball like incredibly loose, he points to his chest like "my bad." Well, yeah, who like... else? Who else is bad? Would it be? <laughs> no, wait, you just fumbled it. Like yeah, who else would yeah. we blame for this?
2: Yeah, just got got to eat that one out. That was bad. That that changed the game right there. That fumble. So I said, just just the way the game goes. Sometimes you gotta protect that football. Can't carry it like a loaf of bread. Is not a problem until it is. Uh, yeah, I no, don't get it.
0: Yeah, I'm sure Bill would have been happy with that if it was on the oh, other yeah. side.
2: Speaking of that, they did have
0: that weird fumble tonight on the handoff, the exchange. It's like, what the heck is going on here?
2: Yeah, yeah. Miscommunication again, it seems like. (laughs) I wasn't real sure. Yeah.
0: (laughs) That is three-time Super Bowl champ, James White. James will talk next week after the Patriots and the Raiders, the McDaniels-Belichick matchup, and excited for that one. We'll see if the offense takes a step forward next week. James, thanks so much for the time, man.
2: No problem. Thanks for having me
0: Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from James White. As always, a win for the Patriots. But man, I just, I don't feel impressed with this team. I really don't. I thought maybe you'd get some progress with the offense this week. Didn't see it whatsoever. All right, we got time for a couple of calls. So let's get to some of those. The number is 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. Who's up first?
1: Hi, my name is Aria. I'm from California and I am really pissed off. High and Bloom did the expected, which was let Xander go. First he lowballed him. Then he said he was a priority. And then, per the Globe, said a stunned High Bloom gets the word in San Diego that Xander is gone. Well, he wouldn't be stunned if he didn't have his head so far up his ass. <sighs> This means that Devers is not going to sign, and the Red Sox are doomed to mediocrity. And let me just say, Kenley Jansen was left off the World Series roster. This guy is done. Stick a fork in him. And the other two retreads are like in their late 30s, and this Japanese Soa, I'm sure he could be great, But, you know, he's a pint-sized outfielder, and, uh, you know, we need a lot more than that. He got no starting pitchers. To say that he lost this winter meeting is the biggest understatement possible. Anyway, Brian, I like the show. I followed it on EEI, and now listen to the podcast. Take care. Bye.
0: Thank you very much. And thank you for the kind words. So a couple of things there in terms of Bloom, I agree with you for the most part. I mean, he really royally screwed up this offseason. One of the things that really aggravates me about Bloom is he always finishes in second, right? We hear the Red Sox basically lead Major League Baseball in finishing runner-up to guys. You think about your own guy, Bogarts, went somewhere else. And I completely agree with you. And we harped on this the other night in terms of Yeah, how could he possibly be shocked? (laughs) He knew there was going to be big offers there for Xander, so how could he possibly be shocked that Xander Bogarts went somewhere else? Then you think about a guy like Mitch Hanniger. The Red Sox were in it with him. He goes to San Francisco. You think about Abreu. That's the one now that really looks bad because Abreu would have been so perfect in this lineup because Cassis would be able to get some days off against good left-handed pitching. He can play first base, but for the most part, you have a DH. Abreu had 304 last year, which was eighth in Major League Baseball. That to me is like the guy that Red Sox never lose out on. That was their number one target, and they lost out on him. That never used to happen until Heim Bloom took over. Bassett signs with the Blue Jays today. That's another bad thing for the Red Sox. Is a good starting pitcher. I'm not telling you that he's an ace, but. He'd be really good for your rotation. And you think about what they're building there in Toronto, where they have Manoa already, who, even though I despise the guy, I mean, the guy's celebrating and taunting Franchi Cordero and Bobby Dahlback after he strikes them out. Like, man, take a number. Everybody strikes those guys out, okay? Franchi got DFA'd. Bobby Dahlback got sent down. I mean, everybody strikes those guys out. And nonetheless, this isn't about Manoa. But they got Manoa, they got Gosman, and now Bassett's their number three. That guy's their number three. Toronto doesn't give a shit. They're going for it. They hit on the guys they want to target. Sanga ends up going elsewhere, and the Red Sox aren't able to land him. So all these guys that the Red Sox have been in on, they miss out on. That's the most aggravating and frustrating thing to me. Now, with the Canley Jansen situation, I understand the frustration. He's one of the slowest working pitchers in Major League Baseball, but I am happy they have a professional closer, and I get it. He's had his hiccups at times in terms of the issues throwing strikes, but when he's on, he's really good. And I'd much rather them go after a guy like Hanley Jansen than a guy like Jake Diekman, who Jake Diekman, his resume is he always walked guys. I get that Jansen has a little bit of an issue with that, but Jansen also has a reputation where, yeah, he can blow some saves, but he was second in Major League Baseball in terms of the national in terms of all of baseball and saves, and he was first in the National League. So I'm okay with that, okay? I'm okay with saying, hey, this guy is going to get the ninth inning for us, Right. So I didn't have an issue with that. I actually liked that signing. I like the Martin signing. I get that you're referencing the age, but the guy throws strikes, and that's something the Red Sox didn't have last year out of their bullpen. So I actually liked what they did with the bullpen. That's pretty much all I liked about what they did. As it pertains to Yoshida, who you brought up, I do like the fact, I mentioned this the other day, that he walks, which is great. We'll see if the power numbers come over, right? Because... Even if the power numbers don't completely come over, can he give you a bunch of doubles? I mean, because that would clearly help out with this lineup as well. And you do wonder now what they need to add. This should be their number one priority is a right-handed hitter that hopefully can DH and spell Cassis when there is a, left, a tough lefty on the mound. That that would be my thing. And then the other thing I would say is now with the starting pitching market, it's really not there anymore, right? All these guys have gone to other locations you may have to trade for a guy. And one of the things we heard about Heimblum, and this is true, he has rebuilt the farm system. The farm system is good now. So you were talking about being serious about winning at the major league level. So if that is the case, that means you have to be willing to pick out the prospects that you think can get you value in return to get you a major league starter because now you still need another starter. There's just too much uncertainty in the rotation with the injury history of Sale, the injury history of Paxton. Now, I believe in Garrett Whitlock but is he going to be in the rotation of still out there? That'd be a nice guy to bring back if you believe that he's going to be OK from an injury perspective. I love what we see from Brian Bale. But again, this guy is a young pitcher. So you just come back to the fact that there has to be some stability. And one thing that I will say, and I know I've talked to Dave Nebraska a lot over the past couple of weeks, he was really good at finding the guys in the farm system. That they would be okay with parting ways with, right? When you start to think about some of the trades that he made throughout the years, he was really good at being able to say, you know what, Santiago Espinal, maybe he's a good player, but, I, you know, I need Steve Pierce to win a World Series. He was really good at doing that. Manuel Margot, that was the main piece to get Craig Kimbrell. He was okay with it. Even if you look at the Chris Sale trade, Michael Kopech has barely been a starting pitcher in Major League Baseball. He's dealing with all these injuries, and Johan is not that good. So Dave Dombrowski was really good at that. Heimblum has to prove that. and. Part of building up the farm system is you built up a surplus so you can get elite major league players or really good major league players. alright nine six seven one seven two is the number. Who's up next?
3: Hey, Luke from the South End here. Brian, the Celtics loss on Saturday night was really tough. The Warriors, with all their issues this year, absolutely beat down the Celtics, and it was really hard to watch. The Celtics played one of their worst games of the season, and I'm really sad and frustrated because I felt like this was their chance to show that they've really grown since the team that collapsed last year in the finals. And instead, what they showed was that, well, the Warriors are still in their heads. The only potential positive I can kind of take away from this game is that maybe this dynamic with the Warriors will turn into some sort of fuel for the team to rally around. I don't know, like how Michael Jordan's Bulls had to overcome the Pistons. I feel like a lot of great teams needed to overcome the last great dynasty before they could establish their own. So anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts on if you think this loss could maybe be good for the Celtics in the long run, you know, even if it stings right now. Thanks.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting point until we watched them play the Clippers tonight and they got their ass kicked again. Now, I'm completely with you in terms of the Golden State thing, and I know you sent in that call probably before the Clippers game, but I understand your point rallying around that loss, but I felt like that game Saturday night was such a disappointment for so many reasons because, and look, it's an over, it's a regular season loss. I'm not saying, like, hit the panic button on the Celtics, although there are some things at a second that I want to get to in terms of the concerns with this team right now. But one thing that aggravated me, and maybe this is just me being selfish, is I gave you the list of the things that I wanted to see against the Warriors. Make it difficult on Curry. Well, that didn't happen. Okay, Jason Tatum, redeem yourself for the finals. Prove to them that you are this elite player, and they exposed you in the finals last year. That didn't happen. Aggravate Draymond Green. That didn't happen. Make Steve Kerr turn red. That didn't happen. So all the things I wanted to see the Celtics do in that game, they didn't do it whatsoever. The Warriors still sort of proved that they had something on the Celtics, even though they've had, as you alluded to, Luke, a difficult season so far. So let me get to that in terms of the Celtics, because what I felt like was going to happen in terms of going out West was they were going to send this message to the rest of the league. And they sort of did to start it right you play Phoenix, you win 125 to 98 and that doesn't even really tell you the real story in that game. The Celtics at one point were up 100 to 96, but then the last two games out west, the Warriors, you lose to them 123 to 107. And then the Clippers game was actually worse. It's the final score is 113-93, but the Celtics were not in that game for the majority of the third quarter. They were blown out tonight. There's no way around it. But you look at it, okay? So you get Booker and Paul, then you get Clay, Draymond and Curry. You get Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, and then on Tuesday night you're going to get LeBron and Anthony Davis, and you felt like okay, you're playing a bunch of older superstars with the exception of, of course, Devin Booker. But for the sake of the Celtics, Devin Booker is older than their guys, and you're going to stick it to the rest of the league and prove to the NBA that hey, this is true. Like this resume that you put together so far this season, where you had the historic offense and all that, you're going to put that on display for everybody to see that out west, and you just haven't done it. Uh, one thing real quickly that has bothered me and it bothered me tonight, is I don't know what the fuck Joe Missoula is doing with these minutes. Jason Tatum is in the game down 21 with three minutes and nine seconds left. That's when he finally took him out of the game. It is over. Surrender at that particular point in time. Live to play another game. I don't know what Missoula is doing when it comes to that. Tatum played 36.7 minutes per game so far this season. That's six in the NBA. This is after 76 games last year and 24 playoff games. I'm not telling you that this is an excuse for Jason Tatum, but when you're getting blown out like that and you have an opportunity to sit down your superstar when you're playing the Lakers the next night, sit him down. What are you doing? Sit him down. It makes no sense. what's Jalen's in the end of the game too. Pull him out. You're down 21 points. Pull them out of the damn game. I don't know what he's doing there. But anyway, getting to Tatum, a little bit of frustration, right? We mentioned on the podcast last week that Jason Tatum really struggled in terms of shooting twos, Against the Warriors, well, what happened in the past two games? Against the Warriors, 4 of 12 on two-pointers, and that is 33.3%. He was shooting a career best going into that game, 56.3%. 33.3% against the Warriors. Against the Clippers, 5 of 12, so a little bit better, but still not good. 41.6%. So all all this praise we're giving Tatum, and he deserves all of it. We're talking about finishing in the restricted area, finishing in the paint. He took a step back the past two games. I'm not telling you he's not going to get back to that elite level because I believe he will, but the last two games, the two-point shooting hasn't been nearly good enough. You look at in terms of the game against the Warriors, he attempted one shot in the restricted area, and he's averaging 5.8 attempts per game in the restricted area, shooting 72.2%. So he only got there one time. So the Warriors have something on him, where this happened in the finals as well, where he can't get to the basket. And all that stuff that he improved on in the offseason we saw for the majority of this season. He, for whatever reason, the Warriors have Jason Tatum's number. And look, this is not going to be a major problem until you see the Warriors, potentially if the Warriors get to the finals and you get to the finals. But it is interesting that this is like the one team that can keep Jason Tatum away from the rim because all season long, he's been living at the rim. The Warriors cut him off. The Clippers game tonight, he got there more. Eight attempts in the restricted area, which is good. I mean, that's a lot of attempts in the restricted area, but he's only four for eight. So 50%, you got to be better when it comes to that. But I go back to the Warriors game first because the Celtics still had a chance in that game as poorly as they played. It's 107 to 99 with five minutes and two seconds left. Jason Tatum gets to the free throw line. So you're like, all right, you got a chance to get back in this thing. And what happens? Tatum misses a pair of free throws. Like this is where your superstar Even though he's not playing well, this is where he turns the game around, right? And he turns it on. He completely takes it over at the end. Yeah, Tatum was bad for three and a half quarters, but he turned it on at the end of the Celtics win. No, he misses two free throws. And then on the other end, you give up an offensive rebound to Kevon Looney. He gets the putback. It's 109-99. That's the game right there where Tatum has a chance to get you back in it, misses the two free throws. Unfortunately, the Celtics lose. And for the first time all season long, We're now seeing Tatum being outplayed consistently over the past week and change or the past two games, I should say, not week and change, but the past two games he's been outplayed. Where you look at it, Curry and Thompson, they go for 32 and 34 and Jason Tatum had 18 on Saturday night. You think about this game tonight against Kawhi and Paul George, Tatum goes for 20. He was a minus 18. Kawhi goes for 25. He missed two shots. He's a plus 23. He actually looked like himself tonight, which is scary for the Western Conference, Paul George goes for 26. He's a plus 18. So both those guys were significantly better than Jason Tatum was tonight, which is this is where I thought Tatum was going to sort of try to put that crown on as the best player in the NBA where he's getting to play all these older superstars and say, no, it's my league now. And he just didn't deliver that message on Saturday night to Steph Curry. And he didn't deliver that message tonight to Kawhi Leonard, a two-time finals MVP. Instead, Curry and Kawhi Leonard We're basically sending the message that, no, we're still here. And Jason Tatum didn't come up big in these games whatsoever. I thought the Celtics shot selection, by the way, was horrible in the Warriors game. Five attempts in the restricted area. No team on the season takes fewer than 21. So I I don't know what's going on with that in terms of the Warriors have something on the Celtics. I thought this was their opportunity to sort of exercise those demons. It wasn't whatsoever. And then you just look at in terms of, we talked about the historic pace that the Celtics offense is on and cleaning the glass tracks half-court offense as well. The Celtics against the Warriors, 88.5 half-court rating. No team this season is self of 89 in terms of their half-court rating. It was even worse tonight against the Clippers. It was at 88.2. So that's 88.2 points per 100 possession in the half-court. The Celtics coming into tonight's game... 107.6, by far, number one in the NBA. Past two games, it's been at 88.5 and 88.2. And I attribute that to Jason Tatum not getting to the rim against the Warriors. And of course, when you look at it, shooting poorly from two-point territory. And then secondarily tonight, it's just a total team issue right now where it feels like, and this had not happened in the past. When Tatum wasn't playing well earlier this season, when he had the rare off game, the rest of the team would step up. We just haven't seen that the past two nights. So the half-court offense, that's alarming over the past two games. So unfortunately, Tatum didn't deliver the message you'd like him to deliver. But the Celtics' defense has also been an issue over the past two games. Now, one of the things, and it's not an excuse, it's in reality. You didn't have Al Horford tonight. Of course, you still haven't had Robert Williams, although there was some like Rumors out there, maybe you could play Saturday. Well, he still hasn't played this season, and that means you didn't have either one of your traditional bigs, and Blake Griffin is needing to play every game now, and he's just not fit for that role. We told you, we loved Blake. One game a week, Blake. That's awesome, but not every game, Blake. Okay, he can only play once a week. We found the role for him. That's it. Once a week, Blake. But instead, he's played a lot of minutes now, and the half-court defense has struggled. Against the Warriors, the half-court defense, according to Cleaning of the Glass, was 97.6 in terms of the rating. Only seven teams are worse than that on the year. And the Clippers tonight, 103.5 in terms of their offensive rating in the half-court. The worst half-court defense this year is San Antonio at 102.3. And the Celtics were at 103.5 tonight against the Clippers. So the Clippers were basically getting whatever they wanted in this game in the half-court, not in transition, in the half-court, they were getting beat up. And then you look at that Warriors game on twos. They shot 34 of 53. That's 64.2%. The Kings are the best in the league at 58.9. The Warriors were at 64.2% in that game. So the defense has certainly struggled. And look, Robert Williams mucks up everything going on in the mid-range. He mucks up some three-point attempts. And I get all of that. But the effort has not been there the past couple of nights. And the other thing I would mention, and I know you're not going to be game plan specific during the regular season. But Curry's walking into open jump shots again. We saw this in the finals. The drop coverage does not work against Steph Curry. You got to switch that. We saw way too much drop coverage where they're just dropping the big and Curry's taking two dribbles. And he we know he can knock it down like basically 10 feet behind the three-point arc. And you're letting him walk into, for him, easy shots. This is something that has to be game plan specific. And, t- and by the way, Curry got four wide open shots in that game where the closest defender is at least six feet away. How does that happen with Steph Curry? And by the way, All four were threes and he was three of four. How can that happen with a guy like Steph Curry? It just makes no sense to me whatsoever. And then against the Clippers, this is where I come down to game plan stuff. So the Clippers and all their stats are sort of misleading because Kawhi Leonard has missed so much time this season. Paul George missed some time as well. But the Clippers, if you look at their numbers tonight, they were 11 of 21 in the mid range. That's 52.4%. The Celtics came into tonight giving up opponents were shooting 45.5% in the mid-range against the C's. That was the Celtics ranked 26 in the NBA, so not good. Now, I attribute a lot of that to shot luck, but in a game like tonight, where the Celtics' game plan is to give up mid-range jump shots, we know that. They give up 15 per game, which is the most in the NBA. That's fine. Okay, you can live that way for the majority of the regular season against most teams, but think about the players on that team. Kawhi Leonard, Paul George and Marcus Morris, all those guys, as we especially know with Marcus Morris, although I did not love his time here because the guy turned into a black hole. You would never see that the next time you see Marcus Morris pass, it'll be the first time. But nonetheless, getting back to my point, we know that Marcus Morris is good in the mid-range. So those three guys tonight combined to go eight of 14 in the mid-range. That's 57.1%. So this is what I come back to with Joe Mazzula. It's fine if you want to give up a ton of mid-range jump shots, but. When Kawhi's hitting him, when Paul George is hitting him, when Marcus Morris is hitting him, you got to shut that shit down and you got to alter what you're doing in terms of your defense. You can't just have the same game plan every night in terms of your scheme. It comes back to, remember the Bulls game, DeMar DeRozan, Zach Levine, those guys killed you in the mid-range. And that's a team that shouldn't beat you from a talent perspective. There's no shame in losing to this Clippers team. Now, I didn't like the way that it happened. But with the Bulls, it's like, OK, that's what they do well. They're not good at many things, but they can shoot in the mid range. And the Celtics didn't alter to the game plan. It's a really good strategy for most of the year. But every once in a while, you got to come out of your shell and say, hey, uh, yeah, they're actually really good at this. We shouldn't do that. And that sort of aggravates me with Joe Mazzulla at times. But the other thing I would mention, too, in terms of that Warriors game, As we flip back and forth between these two games, 19 fast break points, the Warriors had Toronto leads the league at 18.7. The Rockets give up the most in the NBA at 17.7. The Celtics gave up 19 against the Warriors and the Warriors who are just so good in transition and with them with transition, not trying to get dunks. They're trying to get open threes. That shit just can't happen. And the Celtics have been really good in that this year. 12.1 fast break points against per game, fourth best in the NBA and against the Warriors. They just completely fell apart. Now, with the Clippers, tonight the issue was not giving up fast break points to the Clippers. They just completely embarrassed you in the half court. The issue tonight for the Celtics offensively, they didn't run. You know how many fast break points the Celtics had against the Clippers? One. This is one of the most athletic teams in the NBA. They had one. The Celtics are 12th in the NBA. They're not great in terms of fast break points. They're really good in transition, but they're fast break points. 12th in the NBA, 10.9. They had one tonight. The Mavericks are last in the entire league this season. And the Celtics tonight... One fast break point. That's it. One fast break point of the game tonight. I mean, you almost have to make that up. You wouldn't believe it if it didn't actually happen. So, past two nights have been very disappointing, or I should say, past two games have been really disappointing for the Celtics. I'm not telling you to panic or anything along those lines. I just had a couple of issues what we've seen the past couple of nights. But here's the thing you have a chance on Tuesday, LeBron, Anthony Davis, that crew to send a message and you want to see a dominating performance from the Celtics team to sort of after the Clippers and the Warriors bad losses, you had the Suns win before that, but you'd like to cap this off. You don't want to lose three in a row and you don't want to keep getting beat by these guys that are like these veteran, really good players in the NBA. I feel like it's a huge statement game for Tatum and Brown after everything that has transpired against the Warriors and the Clippers to pick up a big time win against this Lakers team because the Lakers have played much better basketball as of late all right as always make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172 again that number 617-396-7172 thanks to jamie mcclellan and steve strudy for producing this podcast and we'll chat in a couple of days